you've made it this far, we thank you. If you're just tuning in, don't worry, we don't bite. The same can't be said for the denizens of our delirious dungeon, but after last week's episode, they're still sleeping like kittens. Try not to wake them with your screams. A reminder that for the month of October, anyone who rates our podcast and sends a screenshot to at Dungeon of Delirium on Instagram or contact at dungeonofdelirium.com will be entered to win a custom Dungeon of Delirium bong by our sister company, Little Ghost Boutique. The winner will be announced on our Halloween special, October 31st. The special will feature four interlocking tales of terror set on Halloween night. Don't forget to tune in while you hand out candy. Without razor blades, we hope. Tonight's tale introduces us to Elsie and the support group she turns to after the world around her stops making sense and an old anger comes rising to the surface. Will they help her cope the rising tide of rage or push her deeper into her well of malice? So don your fanciest bit and join us for One Last Tea Party in the Garden of Fire. She was buried last Wednesday. I watched from a bench across the cemetery. 
I saw her family speak of her as if she were the next Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> she was 80 for fuck's sake. I know it's shitty to say, but sometimes I'm so relieved it was an old lady and not a kid. But they wept for her and they held one another and I guess I was responsible. The girl speaking hangs her head as if playing a role she's rehearsed on remorse. This is followed by a slow, uninspired applause. Thank you for sharing with us, Mallory. I know that we've all done things we wish we could take back, but it's good you're here tonight, right? Mallory attempts a half smile and nods before reclaiming her seat. How about you? We like to give new faces an opportunity to speak, but only if you're comfortable. Uh, Maybe start with introducing yourself and anything else you'd want to share tonight. I sat in the very back corner of the meeting, slouched in a pew with my hoodie draped around my face in hopes it would conceal me entirely. But since I was 15 minutes late, I suppose that didn't work. I hadn't planned to speak. I hadn't even planned to be here. But it was the only place that felt familiar as insatiable hunger pulsed throughout me. It was the only place I'd heard stories like the one I'm about to tell. Stories of loss, desperation, and tragedy. And oftentimes the person telling the tale was the villain. But not here. Not in this room. Here we're just people. People doing the best we could with the cards we'd been dealt. People who'd made mistakes and would surely make more. This room was the only place I could ever say, Um, hi. My name is Elsie. It wasn't, but I had no intention of sharing my real name. Not here. Mallory was most certainly not Mallory after all. We're all just going through the motions. Um, I'm not new. It's been a while. It's been 12 years. Actually, 147 months since my last slip. There's a noticeable shift in gaze toward me when I say these words, almost as if the reality of addiction lasting a lifetime takes hold. A handful of them glancing at me wanting, no needing to hear that I made it, that I'm reformed and I'm okay now. Another handful are still waiting, expecting to hear that I didn't, and that life is exactly what they know it to be. A constant cycle of hurt and disappointment. I came here tonight because, well, I don't really know how I ended up here tonight, but it felt like the only thing to do. I trail off and nervously shift in my spot because suddenly there's a bulge in my throat and I can't say why I'm here. I'm filled with shame and vulnerability and suddenly this place I thought was safe feels like the walls are closing in. Elsie, welcome. You don't need a reason to be here. Uh, I'm just glad you found us. So for Elsie and anyone else who needs a reminder, I just want to reassure you, our group is a safe space. Anything we share or discuss here stays in this room. Phones go in the basket at the entrance to make sure everyone is comfortable. And you can grab it at any time if you need to step out. We do not pass judgment here. We listen, we learn, we share, We listen, we heal. If there's anything else you need to get off your chest, 
The floor remains yours. I close my eyes and inhale slowly, holding my breath before I exhale the words. I guess I've been angry for a while. Like, really angry. I try, but I lose control. The anger consumes me. I disappear entirely and all that's left is blind rage in the space that I used to exist. My entire life, I felt like I've been clawing my way out of this darkness, this pit. A black pit slicked with tar and grease and I've had to fight and scratch and claw my way out of it. All the while, people who claim to love me climb up my shoulders, step on my back and emerge from the depths. Or they cling to my ankles and pull me down and drown me in the filth. The last time I was this angry was 12 years ago. I didn't know what to do with it then, just as sure as I don't know what to do with it now. I was 15 years old when I felt this anger manifesting inside of me. It didn't help that I was in a seemingly never-ending awkward phase. I was born in a house filled with smoke and screaming, and eventually I landed on my grandmother's doorstep when my parents wanted to go their separate ways. Neither with a four-year-old in tow. Last I had heard, my mom was a performer in Las Vegas, and my dad lived about eight miles away. When I first went to live with my grandmother, we'd see him at the grocery store. He'd start the other direction, hoping I didn't remember him or what he looked like. But I was four, and I did remember. He started going to a new store, and I stopped seeing him around. Out of sight, out of mind, I guess. The year I entered high school, I didn't know how to style my frizzy hair. I had a crooked smile, and my tits were comically large on my frame. And while this alone shouldn't be a social death sentence, it basically was for a young girl navigating high school in the public school system. It was embarrassing just existing in my own body. How I wished I could trade places or disappear with anyone, but instead I spent my days being tortured and humiliated in school by monosyllabic boys with low ambitions, lower IQs, who'd stare at my chest while commenting loudly on how ugly I was or how they'd fuck me. They'd grope me in crowded halls or not so quietly discuss the rumors about me perpetuated by the girls. The girls who were already better than me in every measurable way that held any relevance at all to a 15-year-old girl. They were pretty and skinny and rich and had 3.8 GPAs. Two doting parents who worshipped the ground they walked on and they all absolutely fucking hated me. Each day they would remind me as if I could possibly forget. It started because I had looked at Whitney Cunningham's boyfriend. And eventually it just felt like a rite of passage at our school. Beat the shit out of the girl on the verge of hanging herself. Or they'd circulate rumors about me banging the entire football team. They'd call me names. They'd even create vile, not to mention illegal personal ads with my phone number or pictures they'd taken of me in the locker room. 
They'd gather into their little cunt circle in the hallway, huddling around someone's phone, and they would take turns howling with laughter while occasionally offering a hushed glance in my direction as they'd read about how someone's knuckle-dragging Neanderthal excuse for a boyfriend wanted to violate me. And I kept quiet, because it was how I survived. Just be silent and invisible. Just disappear. But there's only so much a girl can take. So I started to do whatever I could to numb the hurt and the pain of rejection, the pain of high school, the pain of being a girl. I drank and I smoked and I used anything and everything I could get my hands on to try and overcome the sadness. And that felt like it was (laughs) working for a while but the pain would inevitably resurface and I would crave the disassociation again. Then one night, I ran into my dad again. He was at my high school. He still lived eight miles away. And he was there with a woman who looked me up and down with disgust. A young daughter hoisted on his shoulders. The place I used to sit and feel, and I can't even bring myself to think the word loved, feels too distant and foreign now, so instead I settle for something like feel. The place I used to feel anything at all. This was his family now, and they were at my freshman orientation. My eyes scanned back and forth, trying to absorb the full picture. They were there with her son, Luke, a boy I spitefully referred to as Puke, who'd lifted my dress over my head just last week in the library. And I've taken it all in now. Now I'm trying not to black out as the flush spreads from my cheeks to my toes. I'm concentrating on breathing as the room begins to fade away from me. My heart was racing as I fought back the overwhelming urge to cry. And it's unlikely dad recognized me as easily behind my black eye and swollen lip. At least I'd begged to hope not considering how long he gazed at my tits with zero effort to conceal his gaze before refocusing in on my face with a look of disgust all his own. And it happened right then, like lightning, a split. The sadness evaporated and in one instant, rage took its place. It was like a stronger version of myself awakened and took over. My anger gently cradled my sadness before laying it down to rest. I closed my eyes. Do not explode. I stand up and rush out, my grandmother calling after me as the door slammed shut behind me. I was craving a whole new high now. I couldn't suppress the hunger growing deep inside of me by the second. Something to take me to a euphoria unknown. I thought it would just be one time, that I would feel relief, that I might even feel fucking elated once I had scratched this itch. Just one sweet taste to try and never again. And quickly I became certain. I would feel better. I would be better. Once I had killed my dad. When I got home that night, I grabbed a shovel from the barn and began to dig under a gazebo on my grandmother's land. I tore into the ground beneath my feet, and with each plunge into the earth, my rage dissipated, 
but my motivations remained the same. And soon I stood in a shallow hole, tossing earth to the side as I penetrated deeper into the earth. When my grandmother finally got home, she didn't say a word. She let out a knowing exhale. She took my hand gently into hers and gave it a reassuring squeeze while tapping it ever so lightly with her free hand. She then laid down her nice coat and purse in the discarded earth beside us before picking up a shuttle of her own. My lip quivered and I flung my arms around her, hugging her tightly as if begging her to never let me go. I cried like a baby in her lap right there in that grave I was digging. We were digging. And there it was again. Feeling. Loved. My grandmother used to say to me, My darling granddaughter, you are filled with fire. Tread lightly in the forest. She would say it so gently and kind, and as a young child, I thought this was just her first-generation American, old-lady way of describing my sometimes fiery personality. I learned, however, it was actually her way of trying to tell me to have some impulse control so I don't burn down the fucking forest. To be cautious of any accelerants near my flame. The week after we started digging, Grandmother brought home plastic sheeting, rocks, lye, fertilizer, and enough flowers to make it look like she was a landscaper. I'd dig and she'd plant climbing flowers like jasmine and clematis, fragrant flowers like gardenia and garden roses. She added blue hydrangea and a wrought iron bench near the well to sit on. I thought we could sip tea near the garden, she said, grinning excitedly, as if we were only starting a gardening club. Instead, I dumped nine bodies in that hole. The pit. An 80-foot faux well lined with tar, slick, oil, shit, blood, piss, and decay. A modestly disguised tomb wearing the facade of a garden wishing well. It took us three more weekends to finish digging. I remember I was ready to put anyone who looked at me sideways in that hole. Grandmother insisted on the well, on planning. And I think she may have hoped in the beginning that the digging alone would be enough, that I just needed to let off some steam. But each week I drifted away and thought as I daydreamed of stabbing my dad in the face while I watched the light fade from his eyes. I thought about zip-tying puke to a workbench in the garage while I castrated him like cattle before giving him a matching open neck wound. A slow smile would spread across my face while I closed my eyes and imagined bending Whitney Cunningham over my well. I'd push her forehead back and waterboard her with bleach before pushing her over the ledge to break every bone on the 80-foot fall. In my fantasies, she'd survive, and I'd close the lid to silence her screams, letting the darkness and decay finishing her in its own time while I sipped tea in the garden. However, in reality, she snapped her neck on impact. But I played it in my head for weeks. Their realization, the choking sobs, the begging. The tearing of flesh, the metallic squelching of hitting a major artery with a steel blade. The crunching and snapping of bones and the distant splash before silence. 
I guess I was a late bloomer, but no teenage hormones held a candle to my bloodlust. It made me giddy to imagine them in the ground. The feeling was only intensified once they were in the ground. I would grin like an idiot at the mere thought of taking back what they took from me. It intoxicated me. I never felt more enthusiasm for my life as when I was ending theirs, sending them to the hell they'd inspired inside of me. Nine bodies in the pit before grandmother found these meetings. My grandmother enabled my addiction because she wanted to protect me. She chose me until the day she died, protecting my secrets. Unfortunately, my impulse control has improved since I was a vengeful 15-year-old girl, but something happened recently. Something that has me feeling really out of control. My grandmother was killed. And I know some might say this feels like poetic justice. But to the some who would say such a thing, I have a place reserved in my pit for you. My grandmother was killed by a selfish little cunt behind the wheel trying to find an open vein when they ran her over. You were so fucked up you dragged her for six miles, Mallory. And in an instant, I'm lunging for Mallory, furious and focused on only one thing. I am going to choke the life out of this bitch with my bare hands. I feel a relapse coming on. But Mallory beats me to the punch. I feel the blade she pulls on me, piercing my organs like a needle slipping through a pincushion. She puts her free hand on my shoulder to pull me forward, fucking me onto her steel blade. Her hand glides from my shoulder up my neck as she grips a fistful of the hair at the back of my skull. Drawing me closer still, she jerks my ear close to her lips as she whispers, I dragged that old murdering bitch eight miles. She draws back to take in my reaction. I'm grinning now. Both of my blood-soaked hands wrapped around her hands, still holding the blade in place. I squeeze gently. An attempt to laugh sounds like me choking on my own blood. This only makes me laugh harder. As blood spatters her face and I force with the last air in my lungs. My darling sister, you are filled with fire. One Last Tea Party in the Garden of Fire was written and directed by Chelsea Darling. Executive produced by Chelsea Darling and Kevin Klausman. Narration by Chelsea Darling. Additional voices by Chelsea Darling and Kevin Klausman. Produced by Kevin Klausman. Sound design by Kevin Klausman. Original score by Kevin Klausman. See you next week.